son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. We start with the campaign to reduce and eliminate federal vaccine mandates and COVID restrictions, the ones that are main, remaining. It was fascinating to hear Canada's tourism and travel industry leaders this week calling on Trudeau, drop the vaccine mandate, especially for domestic travelers within Canada. Have a listen to this. This is Patrick Doyle from American Express Global Business Travel. The travel and tourism industry has only just begun the long long road to recovery after two years of uncertainty. Health restrictions first implemented at the beginning of the pandemic are contributing to loss and postponement of business travel, conferences, and events across the country, which potentially has a long-term impact. The federal government must act immediately to remove obsolete pandemic provisions. Okay, Justin Trudeau was asked that precise question this week. Will he drop these pandemic provisions? Doesn't sound like he's in a rush to do that. Have a listen. As much as people would like to pretend we're not, we're still in a pandemic. Canadians who die every single day because of COVID-19 in our hospitals are particularly at risk that as fall approaches of new variants. We need to make sure we're doing everything we can to keep Canadians safe, to make sure that we can get back to the things we love as quickly as possible without putting ourselves at risk. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Dr. Brenda Hardy. Dr. Hardy is a family doctor, part of the group Protect Our Province, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Dr. Hardy, thanks very much for coming on today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Okay, can you tell me your your take on this? There's growing pressure here now on the federal government to drop some of these vaccine mandates, especially for travelers. What do you think of that? Well, I think uh, highlighting the uh, fact that we are, in fact, still very much in the middle of a pandemic um, is one of the key points. Um, I know it seems like we're not because we're not hearing about the deaths the way that we had been in the past, but it doesn't mean that they're not occurring. In BC alone, something like 10 to 12 people a day are still dying from COVID uh, on a regular basis. So uh, when we look at the pandemic and what is happening right now, we're not yet in a place where we can reduce the things that help to protect all of us from not only death and hospitalization, but what's coming to light now, more importantly, are the long-term effects of having had COVID, which is starting to have a a massive impact on um, not just travel, but also businesses across the country. So it's estimated there are more than 3 million unvaccinated Canadians. So you think they should still be banned from boarding a domestic airline flight and traveling within Canada? I think what we should be doing is anything that we can to reduce transmission of COVID across the country, because right now we're starting to develop a a new epidemic of chronic disease. We're seeing rates of death from heart attacks that we haven't seen since I graduated from medical school 30 years ago. We're losing all of the gains that we've made in uh, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, because we're seeing this now as a complication for folks who've had COVID. So, 
anything that we can do to reduce mass disabling uh, events that were, are starting to emerge, not just from the long effects of COVID, but the complications and the future problems that we're seeing in folks who've had COVID. I think as a society, we really need to be trying to do what we can to make all of us healthy. So whichever uh, things we can do to reduce transmission are the things that are going to reduce this, uh, the disabilities that we're seeing developing. Okay, so, so it sounds like that you would like to see the mandates continue and perhaps even expand. Is that right? Like, I believe your, your group would support still supports the mask mandate you think the mask mandate should still be in place is that right yeah we think that definitely i mean uncategorically masks have been proven to be one of the few uh, really highly effective protections to reduce transmission reduces hospitalizations reduces death but more importantly reducing transmission which is the key uh thing that's going to prevent all of the long-term complications that we're starting to see from covid so um, masks are you know, a simple and effective strategy. We really do think that it's important to reduce COVID at the source. The more we do that, you know, the more we have clean air to breathe when we're all sharing air in public spaces, the more people can go out and be more active and uh, do more things in the community. Uh, it's safer for all of us to be able to be out and about when so, we're reducing the amount of the infection um, in the air. So we really actually support the, you know, what we call upstream things like going to the source. Where's the problem? You know, because we don't see the air we're breathing. We don't see the germs floating around. It's easy for us to pretend they're not there. But if we can have these awesome little filters over our face that reduce the amount of germ that we're spreading to other folks, then um, that is one of the the best ways. How long? We also think it's important to have clean air regulations. This would be a thing that would make life so much better for all of us. We would all be able to be in public spaces uh, in a much safer manner if we had some support from the government and regulations for businesses and public spaces uh, to have uh, clean air. How long do, does this go on for, though? I mean, we're two and a half years into this thing. I think a lot of people are seeing that there's a lot of COVID out there people who are triple vaccinated or getting COVID. Like, I know more people now who've got COVID than ever before in this pandemic, and they're all fully vaccinated, the people I know that got COVID. And I'm just like, how long do, how long do we keep doing this? Like, at some point, do you, like, do you think these mandates should be permanent? I think we do this until we recognize that this is an airborne disease, that it is in the air that we share. So the problem is, is we keep doing, you know, we, we keep expecting the goalie to do all the work for the whole team, our goalie being vaccination. Uh, and instead, we're not, you know, we've got our two biggest defense basically uh, in the penalty box. We've got masks uh, being removed, and we also don't have any regulations for clearing the air. So if we really did the right things, if we were smart, we wouldn't need things that people feel and find restrictive. If we cleared the air, reduces the transmission, then what happens is we actually see less. We don't have all of our friends and neighbors having the most COVID we've ever seen. Well, we would start shifting towards the least COVID we've ever seen um, if we start acting smarter. Okay, there's growing pressure now. I, I, sus I think there's a growing consensus that, you know, at some point we have to drop these restrictions and drop these mandates. So let me, let me play a clip here for you, doctor, and get your thoughts. So Pierre Polyev, conservative MP, running for the Conservative Party leadership. A lot of people think he's going to win it. He actually put in a private member's bill in the House of Commons to not only drop all the current mandates, 
but ban any future mandates. Have a listen to what he had to say here. We are an outlier in Canada today. Most countries have removed mandates for travel, including the UK, Germany, Italy, Thailand, Poland, Argentina, Chile, uh, and uh, many others. All provinces have now removed vaccine mandates. The five big banks have done likewise, and public sector unions have even begun legal actions to remove these discriminatory mandates. What do you think of that, his position? Well, I, I think two things. First off, when I um, looked online yesterday at his position, I found that when I followed his links, it didn't take me to any details about his position or backing up, um, you know, with any scientific principles, but it did take me to a link to donate to his campaign. So I think mostly this is uh, a way of bringing attention to himself and, you know, a way to try to um, further his political career, maybe not the best use of a private member's bill. Uh, but more importantly, I think as a just society where we want um, to carefully balance, I do agree we need to carefully balance any time that we reduce anybody's uh, liberties in order to protect the rights of, uh, of others. We definitely want to be doing this in a very careful way. And I think if we do something like remove all protections, right now we are definitely harming those who are most vulnerable. And then to say we don't ever want to have any opportunity to protect those folks in the future you know why would we want to try to fight a pandemic with one arm tied behind our backs or i think what he's saying is actually let's amputate both arms so we won't have those fighting chances in the future i just don't think this is a wise plan you mentioned like is there a scientific basis for continuing the mandates let me play another short clip of him speaking in the house of commons on that point yesterday and get your thoughts uh, polyev yesterday sure if we have it you got that other clip, Tim? The Poliev? Okay, These I guess, mandates yeah. have become nothing more than a cruel attempt to demonize a small minority, uh, and uh, they are absolutely unnecessary and without any scientific basis. So he, so he says there's no scientific basis to continuing <laughs> the mandates. You disagree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question. Um, it, there was actually a really great uh, summary just put out by uh, Public Health Ontario maybe a couple months ago about um, the evidence that we have for masks in particular and their their effectiveness. Because I know that question has come up. And the great thing now is two and a half years into this pandemic, we have a lot of great scientific research and studies. Um, they reviewed, I think, 20 different um, high-quality scientific studies and came to the conclusion um, that without a doubt, masks okay. do reduce transmission, reduce death, reduce hospitalizations. There's more than okay. enough scientific uh, evidence. I I wouldn't go to uh, Pierre for scientific evidence. I don't think he's the authority on that. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's take a look at this economy right now, and especially the surging level of consumer debt in Canada. Debt is increasing at alarming pace. Equifax uh, reporting this week total consumer debt in Canada up 8.6% in the first quarter. $2.3 trillion over the past year in debt in Canada. Where is a lot of that debt being racked up? A lot of it is on credit cards, credit card debt going up in Canada. Equifax also reporting this week, average monthly spending on credit cards in Canada up 
17.5% in the first quarter compared to last year. This all comes at the same time, of course, that the Bank of Canada is hiking interest rates. So the bank this week increasing Canada's overnight interest rate by 50 basis points to 1.5% is the new national interest rate from the Bank of Canada, signaling as well that more interest rates are on the horizon as well. Boy, bad timing for people who have that increasing debt, especially on credit cards. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Matt Fabian. Matt is the Director of Research and Consulting at TransUnion Canada, which is a credit reporting agency. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Matt. Thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Matt, let's uh, dig down into some more of these details on, on credit card debt. And I know your group came out with some eye-popping numbers on this this week as well. What can you say about the amount of debt that's being racked up here in credit cards right now? Yeah, we're starting to see uh, credit card balances go up. We, we actually saw them um, go down a little bit through the pandemic, which was counterintuitive. We saw consumers built up uh, a huge amount of household savings through the pandemic, either because of subsidies or um, just trying to uh, kind of accumulate that cash rainy day kind of thing. And um, as a result, we saw uh, a lot of balances starting to pay down. We're starting to see that curve tip up again, you know, with uh, kind of coming out of COVID and with retail opening and being able to travel, we're starting to see uh, sort of what we call revenge spending uh, in the fact <laughs> that, you know, it's been pent up for so long that, um, you know, we're starting to see people uh, go out and, and use that either cash or put it on credit. So we're starting to see balances move back up. <laughs> revenge spending. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can sort of get that, you know, that pent up demand that's been out there. It's been bottled up, especially if people want to start traveling again, right? It costs money. Right. Yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, we saw, uh, you know, the spend rates go way down through the pandemic, obviously, because you couldn't go to certain places to spend and things like travel big ticket items um, weren't available. And so we're starting to see that come back and the big ticket items start to really flood back. And that's what's really driving up uh, a lot of the spend rates. And with that, um, you know, some consumers are starting to carry bigger balances. Yeah, so how much are those balances increasing right now? I, I I learned a long time ago to try and pay those credit card balances off as soon as you can because, man, the interest yeah. rates will kill you. Yeah, we saw about a 5% increase year over year in, in the average balance that a consumer would have on, on all their cards. And so, um, you know, it's it's not insignificant. It's after sort of a, a, a drop of about 2% um, sort of through the pandemic. And so it's come back up and, and we're seeing spend hit kind of pre-pandemic levels as well. So, um, you know, and as you said, with, with inflation um, getting higher and higher, um, you know, the cost of things gets more expensive. And so just everyday purchases like food or gas become uh, maybe prohibitive and people need to use their card a bit more. Yeah, what is the typical interest rate on a credit card right now in Canada? Um, it varies on the type of card. Uh, there's low-rate cards that'll you know be around 10, 12 percent, uh, and then you get into more of the premium cards, which could be 19 up to about 24 percent um, oh. interest rate. Man, oh man! And do those rates go up when the central bank, when the Bank of Canada increases interest rates? Do credit card rates go up too? No, uh, credit right. cards are generally not based on interest rates. It's more the variable rate product. So, if you, for example, if you have a line of credit, uh, a lot of times your line of credit will be a variable rate product, and so you might see interest rates go up uh, depending on the lender if 
the bank rate goes up, also variable rate mortgages are tied to interest rates. So you'll see variable rate mortgages, the actual amount increase. Not all lenders will tack that on. So if you do have a variable rate mortgage, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that your monthly payments will go up immediately. A lot of lenders will stretch out the amortization period to keep your payments the same. So you'll just pay for longer um, or they'll tack it on at the end. Uh, you're you're going to pay it at some point. It's just how they're structured. Speaking of Matt Fabian, TransUnion Canada, they're a credit reporting agency, credit card debt on the rise in Canada. Are credit card companies signing up a lot of new card holders? I get, I get stuff in the mail. Like Some of these credit card companies actually send me a credit card in the mail. They, oh, here you go. Here's a new credit card. Go on out and spe- start spending on it. You know, because they yeah. just, you know, they, they, it's easy to get a credit card. Are, are more Canadians getting credit cards right now? We're, we're seeing um, a big jump in new credit card volumes, um, but that's really kind of a response to, for, through the pandemic, we saw very low uh, credit card volumes. So uh, there was less demand from consumers. Uh, they didn't want to get into more debt during COVID, especially those that maybe had reduced work hours or off work uh, and maybe wouldn't qualify or just didn't want to take that debt on. Um, and lenders tightened their risk policies as well in terms of how much they would lend and who they would lend to. Um, as they normally do when there's sort of an economic downturn. And so as a result, we saw a real drop-off in the volume of new credit cards through sort of 2020 and 2021. Um, and so there's, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to accelerate back up and kind of make up for lost time. And so there, there's a lot of offers going out. Um, and in fact, you know, we're kind of looking at it almost as there's a, there's, this happens sort of in phases um, every few years, but I think we're kind of, uh, we're preparing anyway uh, around sort of the next series of what we call credit card wars, um, as they're all battling for the same share of wallet or they're battling, you know, for their spot in your wallet. And so um, there's going to be a lot more acquisition effort. There's going to be a lot, you know, uh, sweeter offers in terms of loyalty and points and those kind of uh, programs to attract consumers. What other types of credit are on the rise here in Canada? We've been talking about credit card bills, but when you take a look at other sort of categories of debt, like are are people getting more car loans, lines of credit, mortgages, personal loans, are those going up too? Uh, Well, mortgages have been going up for uh, a whole time. Mortgage uh, market was actually, the housing market was the only one that almost, you know, didn't stop through uh, covid uh, it took a little dip, and I think partly that had to do with, you know, you weren't able to go and see homes for a little while. But uh, uh, the market itself, the, the housing prices remain elevated, and, um, you know, once, uh, you know, and, and home sales continue to go. So the mortgage market has been um, growing for a long time. And uh, uh, we have seen a, a, a big increase in lines of credit and personal loans. And I think there's a couple of reasons, right? We saw for through the pandemic, an increase in personal loans. And I think that had to do with debt consolidation. Interest rates were low uh, and consumers were taking advantage of that by consolidating debt. Um, I think now what's happening is lines of credit, especially um, home equity lines, uh, are growing uh, because there's a lot of equity in your home now, right? The, yeah. the, the, the home values have gone up so much, especially in areas like Vancouver. Um, a lot right. of people have massive equity in their homes and that's, uh, in a way, that's sort of unused uh, liquidity. Um, you can argue whether it is or isn't, uh, but but at the at this point, it's real, you know, it's sort of unused liquidity that people have access to, and so they're they're leveraging that to uh, take out lines of credit and do things like renovations or or whatever they want to do. So we are seeing a big increase in lines of credit as well. 
Right. Is there a danger here now that people get in over their heads? You talked about that revenge spending, that pent-up demand to travel again, to spend again, as the pandemic's concerns start to ease. So we're seeing this type of debt go up, credit card debt, all these other categories of debt going up at the same time that interest rates are also going up. I mean, this is uh, this is an unhappy equation for some people, right? Can they end up getting a, a shock? Yeah, uh, and we actually talk about that. You know, the combination of uh, rising interest rates and higher cost of living can, can create that sudden change in payment obligations that, you, you know, somebody can't control, and we call that payment shock. So, you know, you think about cost of living increases, uh, that triggers less disposable income available, and, and you have to make trade-offs in terms of what you're going to spend that income on. Is it going to be rent? Is it going to be food? Is it going to be um, your, your, your minimum payment on your credit card? Um, and so, uh, you know, for many consumers, um, the, that kind of the capacity to absorb that increase uh, becomes becomes difficult. It's a small proportion overall in Canada. Canadian consumers are generally, we found um, through, you know, several different downturns over the last several years have been very resilient. And even through COVID, we thought we would see delinquency rates increase and we actually saw them go down. So the amount of consumers that are actually going delinquent and missing payments on uh, on these types of products are actually go, actually went down and they're still well below pre-pandemic volumes. They're starting to creep up a little bit, but still below even where they were prior to COVID. And so that's a positive thing. But certainly, you know, as this intensifies and as, you know, the, there's sort of um, interest rates go up and inflation remains high, there's going to be a segment of vulnerable consumers that's going to really struggle to make payments. Yeah, at the same time, I mean, this is kind of a weird economy, I think. I mean, you've got inflation at like 30-year highs, but at the same time, you've got basically full employment. There's lots of jobs out there. Right? Yeah, that's people the other side. I mean, you know, the one thing we tell, um, you know, when we work with banks or other people, we, we always talk about looking at both sides of the consumer balance sheet, right? So you're absolutely right that, um, you know, consumer household debt is increasing. But if you look at it on the other side of the balance sheet, we see, you know, um, employment levels are, are at all-time highs. We're seeing, um, you know, higher incomes. Uh, we're seeing higher um, overall um, household wealth. And so, you know, that side of the equation is also going up. And so, uh, you know, the ability to absorb that debt might be, you know, balanced a little bit. Um, yeah. I think the, the challenge becomes when um, the one side grows faster than the other. Right. You mean like when debt starts to go up too quickly? Yeah, certainly, you know, yeah. for some consumers, like I said, your debt, your, your, your debt might go up um, too much. And when you think about inflation and uh, interest rate growth, you know, the, the ability to pay that becomes, uh, you know, if your ability to pay doesn't keep up with that, then you yeah. get into what we call payment shock. Thanks for coming on with your thoughts today. Appreciate it. Thanks. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. Down in the field, it go down, it go down in the field. 
21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Have a great day. Okay. Here we go now with our gun control debate, including the handgun freeze announced this week by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Is this the right thing to do? Will it reduce gun violence? We have a terrific panel standing by on this. Have a listen to this here first, though. This is earlier this week. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing that freeze. Here's how it sounded. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. Okay, Justin Trudeau announcing that handgun freeze earlier this week. All right, let's discuss what a terrific panel we've got for you on this. Sandy Garasino, writer, former trial lawyer. She's a columnist at the National Post. Very pleased to welcome her back. Sandy, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. National Observer. Uh, National Observer, I beg your pardons. Yeah, National (laughs) Observer, of course. Sorry about that. Ari Goldkind, lawyer, speaker, political commentator. Very pleased to welcome Ari back as well. Hi, Ari. Great to be with you, and I only observe nationally. Okay, all right. Uh, Sandy, let me go to you first. Do you think Trudeau's doing the right thing here with his handgun freeze and other gun control measures right now? Well, it took me a, a long time to kind of wade through, the, through a lot of the data, and yes, I think he is. I think he is. Why do you think so? Well, it's not even so much about reducing the, the um, firearm deaths, <clears throat> although that's important. It's about stopping the increase. Firearm deaths in Canada have increased 91%, it's 91% between 2013 to 2020, which is the last data that we have. Um, and I think that there are a lot of myths about where, uh, where the uh, gun danger is and, and who, it's, who it's coming from. The, uh, the law-abiding gun community actually appears to be almost ground zero as far as the community where uh, most of the of the gun deaths come from, and I would point out that overwhelmingly these gun deaths are suicide, and um, uh, and the and the handguns in particular are over fifty percent of homicides, and uh, it, this is this is a, a much more worsening situation than I than I had realized until I go, got into the data. Ari Goldkind, your thoughts. That is the most blatant disinformation and myth-making I've ever heard in my life. I can't believe I just heard it live on a national radio Maybe you program. want to the listen whole... to data. So, again, that's a total misunderstanding or purposeful disinformation from the data. And if the subject, Mike, and let me be very clear, is going to be suicide, that's a very different segment than I think every one of your listeners tuning in, which is really about stopping crime and stopping homicides. I don't have any issue with anybody saying the less guns you have, the fewer suicides you will have. And full disclosure, Mike, just as we get into this, while I think what your audience was just told was horrific misinformation about where the guns come from that are involved in gun crime, I'm a person who hates guns. The less guns, the better. I don't think there should be any guns unless you live on a rural property 
where if you call 911, the police take 45 minutes to get there, which is a very different thing than in Vancouver. So if any listener out there thinks I'm pro-gun, absolutely not. But the question you asked at the top of the segment was, will this make any difference to crime? Not only will it make no difference to crime, the actual criminals are laughing hilariously, even while I continue to find Justin Trudeau speaking on this issue nailed on a blackboard. Okay, let me go back to Sandy Garrison. Sandy, your thoughts. I mean, you want to back up your statements there that Ari questioned there? I'd like Ari to back up his statement that I've given um, this information. My data comes from um, my data comes from Statistics Canada. By far and away, most of our gun deaths are happening on the prairie provinces and in northern communities and in northern rural communities. And it's not just suicide, but we should be very concerned about suicide. I mean, guns kill people, whether it's about crime or not crime. And I would be happy enough with these results since 75% of our gun deaths are suicide. And um, experts all agree that the single most determinative uh, factor as to whether a suicide is successful is the lethality of the method used. And by far and away, a handgun or a gun of any kind <clears throat> is the most effective. So if, we're only ta- if we only care about crime, um, we are missing most of our deaths. But most importantly, one of the key things that we're missing is the nexus between um, depression, mental health, suicide, family violence, and substance abuse, and guns. And this is where overwhelmingly our gun deaths are happening. It's not the gangs in the street. Toronto has one of the lowest gun gun homicide rates in Canada. Ari. I just think I'm on Mars and she's on Venus, with all due respect. If you want to talk about suicide, let's have a discussion about suicide. I don't think there's a listener of yours who has turned into this segment, nor your introduction, to talk about how you reduce suicides. That's a perfectly fair game, perfectly good argument to have. If you have less guns, nobody can blow their head off with one. I thought we're talking about crime, and this measure, brought in out of a cabinet drawer, pun intended on cabinet, brought out over the bodies of the dead children in Texas, our prime minister and the public safety minister who knows better, he's a former crown prosecutor, who if he brought this argument in court would be laughed out of the court. This will make no difference if this is what the segment is about, Mike, but you're in charge, not me. If the segment is about, will this reduce gun crime throughout Canada, particularly in major Canadian cities, not only will it make no difference, it further emboldens criminals, particularly those that bring up all of the guns that are used in gun crime, particularly homicides, that are yeah. all smuggled illegally up through the U.S. border, the longest border in the world. Okay, well, let's, let's put a su- the suicide issue aside for a moment and, and talk about gun crime and gun violence, because that's how this announcement by the Prime Minister was framed, that the reason he's doing this handgun freeze is to reduce gun violence in, uh, in Canada. Sandy, do you think that this handgun freeze will accomplish that? Gun violence includes suicide. And I think we cannot, this is, this is a very self-selective thing. If you're going to ignore 75% of the gun deaths 
um, and, and the causes of that and how we can reduce that, then, then we, are, we are completely missing the boat here. But again, this is not about reducing. The assumption being that if the, the idea is to reduce, yeah. that we have seen a 91% increase in gun homicides between 2013 and 2020. And a huge factor of that, over 50% of that, is handgun death, handgun homicide. So okay. we start capping that, we're going to see results. And I just want to say one more thing, Mike. Yeah. Conservative governments in the UK, Australia, and Germany have over a number of decades brought in gun restrictions and basically eliminated handguns except for very exceptional circumstances. And they have, on average, less than half our rate of gun homicides and gun deaths. Uh, Ari, what do you say to that briefly? And then we'll fit a break in here. I don't even know where to... She's still on suicides. I mean, why don't we just talk about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard because the two things are not together. This is an order out of the cabinet which is specifically about gun crime. If you want to talk about suicide, let's talk about fentanyl overdoses too. Well, That's she well she just thing. well she just talked she just talked about homicide rates, no, so No, 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 no. We're talking about crime rates. And yeah. anybody out there listening Homicides to this, you got to go to break because you've got to go to break. Anybody who thinks that this measure will reduce or curb gun crime. Yeah. Crime committed by weapons really needs to spend a day in the courts or better yet, Mike, and I'm sure you can do this anytime you want, speak to any homicide detective and ask them if the gun used in the commission of offense in any major national Canadian city is usually legal or illegal. And you will find out that the numbers are infinitesimal, that these are the kinds of guns that would be covered by this public safety measure, which is anything but. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking gun control, the handgun freeze announced this week by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. My guests are Sandy Garasino and Ari Goldkind. Let's uh, fit a call in here. Brian on Vancouver Island. Brian, go ahead. Yeah, um, there's never enough time to really discuss this in depth. Uh, There's so many nuanced points here. I'm a gun owner myself. Uh, My dad used to teach RCMP. Um, so I've been an instructor myself. Uh, I'm not super miffed about this thing. Uh, to me, my handguns are for target practice only. Um, and can I do without that? Sure. But you know, it's a sport and I wanted to become competitive and this is going to eliminate that opportunity for a lot of people. Um, it's, it's a disappointing to see, uh, because I don't think they're concentrating on the right thing, which is let's address mental health in a real big way. Let's make it you know, as important and as high priority a topic and as covered uh, under our, our federal and, and provincial plans as uh, physical health. Okay. Um, let's take a real hard look at it and you know, not criminalize uh, law-abiding, um, heavily regulated gun owners as they are now. Thanks for the call. Sandy Garasino, what would you say to him? Um, well, I agree that... You know, law-abiding and and well-regulated um, um, gun users like Brian are fine, and I agree with Brian about mental health. I mean, this is really the the ultimate key. But what we see from um, the experience of the UK, which has one tenth the uh, uh, gun death rate of Canada and Germany and Australia, which both have half of our gun death rate, 
is that um, controlling access to guns actually does have a, a real big effect. And yes, you know, hobbies are nice, but I'm also concerned about the family violence here. And a lot of people who appear to be and appear to their peers and friends to be regular guys and all law-abiding, at home it's a different story. And I know that there are women listening here today who are afraid to talk about the violence in their homes and are afraid to talk about the impact and the pre- of the presence of guns in their homes, especially okay. if they have a partner who has um, a, a substance abuse and, and is a heavy drinker, which is about 30% of males between the ages of 18 and 50. Ari, what do you say to that? Well, again, we're having a totally different conversation. Ms. Garrison was talking about one thing, I'm another, but let me throw this there. I agree with the premise, because I'm going to now say full disclosure to your audience. I don't think there should be any guns, particularly in cities, and there is no doubt when there is a gun in a home, that gun is about a bajillion times more likely to be used on a loved one, particularly a woman in an act of domestic violence, than shooting a bad guy. But you know what, Mike? That's a conversation for a different day. The one we're having here is, will this announcement, where every time there's a a tragedy, Prime Minister speaking moistly has a press conference, pretends he's doing something about it, looks like he's doing something about it to those people who will never be critical of him, and achieves nothing. Crime rates with guns are going up. And let me quote, Mike, because your colleague here on the phone said, stats can, stats can, stats can. Well, this is a bill that is meant to reduce the number of handguns used in violent crime. What does StatsCan itself say? It's the first thing that comes up on Google. And I will quote, StatsCan stresses that there are gaps in its reporting. Of particular concern, there's currently little information available to determine the source of firearms used in crime. For example, whether a gun used in a crime was stolen, illegally purchased, or smuggled into the country, end quote. You would think before you go after law-abiding people who by their very definition are law-abiding, that would be a waste of time and you would focus all of your prosecutorial energy on the very small number of antisocial people in this country who despite the existence of dozens of laws not to have guns or shoot people, continue to have guns and shoot people. Okay, running out of time. Squeeze another call in. Sean in North Vancouver. Sean, go quickly, please. You have 30 seconds. Go ahead. Mike, as a police officer, public safety is one of my main concerns. If this government or any government were concerned about safety of Canadians, they'd be dealing with tobacco, which kills more people than murder, suicide, and illicit drugs combined. Also, the concept of the notion that there's no legal justification for handguns is patently false. I have helped women in the past 20 years legally acquire handguns them to shoot because they were victims of domestic violence. A handgun is the most efficient tool to protect life. That's why every government on the planet equips its own bodyguards and police, etc. with them. Thank you, Sean. We're uh, out of ta- getting out of time here, so I'll give our panelists 30 seconds each to sum up. Sandy, go ahead. You have 30 seconds here. Toronto's gun violence and gun homicide rate is less than half the gun violence and homicide rate of Regina, of Edmonton, of Thunder Bay, and of Winnipeg. And this is a complete canard that what we really want to be talking about is the gangs. Look, it's, again, 
It is domestic violence is the biggest threat. There is a code of silence around this and a code of silence around alcohol abuse and guns and family. Okay. And this is, goes to suicide and domestic violence. Ari, 30 seconds. Every country with less guns is a safer country. This measure is a con job on Canadians. Let me go back to the police officer caller. Isn't it fascinating that the people calling for the disarming and dearming of citizens who are law-abiding and careful are the very same people whose security details are well-recognized, have fully automated, automatic, often power. It's the rules for the crowd, not for me. And that's astounding, given that if you look at the Congress or the Senate, Mike, All of these people say you should be disarmed because you're less important than me. I don't think that's as important as they think they are. All right, let's talk about this soaring death toll from illicit drug overdoses in British Columbia now and the response this week from the provincial and federal governments decriminalizing drug possession. Uh, On Tuesday, both governments announcing a three-year exemption under the Federal Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. It will remove criminal charges for people who possess illicit drugs for their personal use. So no charges would be laid in B.C. for adults possessing up to 2.5 grams of heroin and other opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, ecstasy, Both governments say this is a step that's needed to reduce the shame and fear associated with drug use and with the goal of reducing overdoses and deaths. I've got the federal minister responsible, Carolyn Bennett, coming up a little later here in this half hour. And she'll be my guest here after the break. But first, let's discuss this now with my guest, Mo Korchinski. Mo is the president. The board of directors is at the Alouette Addiction Services in Maple Ridge. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Mo, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Okay. When we hear this announcement from governments decriminalizing possession of these drugs do you think this will make a difference is this is this the right thing to do will it save lives well i think it's a start and i'm really happy that you know we're bringing up the overdose crisis again because i don't think we're doing i know we're not doing enough um but do i think it's gonna make a difference um no i mean you know i'm the executive director of unlocking the gate service society where i work with people involved in the justice system and i i can't even remember last time i seen somebody who was charged for simple possession Yeah, that's one of the things that went through my mind as well, because I've talked to police officers over the years, notably in the Vancouver Police Department, who say, like, look, we don't charge people for possessing small amounts of these drugs. Exactly. Right. And if they do get caught with dope, usually it's because they're doing another another crime. You know, when they get pulled in and they find dope on them, but they don't get charged for it. Yeah. Um, You know, and again, it's back to. Where's recovery? Where's detox? Right? I mean, if somebody wants to go get help and get off the dope, there's no help. You know, you have a month, you know, month wait list to get into detox. I had a friend who died last week waiting, on, waiting to get into detox, and this happens yeah. all the time. You know, I'm working with people coming out of the prison system. They want to change. They want, but there's nowhere for them to go. You know, sending them to a homeless shelter when you just get out of jail is not the answer. When I speak to uh, advocates for drug users, who they've been frequent guests on the show as well, and 
they have said to me, okay, well, maybe police will not charge. There won't be a charge for possession of a small amount of drugs. But oftentimes police, if they stop someone, they will take their drugs away. So even if they have like a small amount on them for personal use, all right, maybe they don't get written up with a charge or a ticket, but they take their drugs away and they say, that's a bad thing. What are your thoughts on that? Well, definitely. I mean, because they're going to go out and do more crime to get, you know, to replace that drug. So, um, yeah. you know, so yeah, I get, I mean, that's the only bonus I see of this new one is that, you know, people aren't going to be dope sick and being more desperate. But is it going to affect the ones who are dying? It's not yeah. the street population what's dying. We know that, right? You know, it's the ones who are, you know, middle class, working class, the ones who are weekend users are what are dying. So, again, it's the town to drugs and, you know, decriminalizing. It's not going to affect the ones that are dying. And that's why we really got to focus on, you know. And, again, people, and again, people who yeah. are opiate users do recover, mm-hmm. you know. And why aren't we focusing more on that? I'm 16 years clean. I'm totally absent-free, right? My whole team on Unlocking the Gates, I have 15 staff, are all clean and sober. We do recover. And we need, and people need to have access to recovery. The, I was sp- speaking to Mo Korchinski, Alouette Addiction Services in Maple Ridge. She's also with the Unlocking the Gates Service Society. Mo, one of the things that government officials said this week, uh, explaining why they're decriminalizing possession of these drugs in small amounts, is they said they want to reduce the shame and fear and stigma associated with substance use and their argument was that some people who may be ashamed of their drug use may use drugs alone and that makes them at higher risk of a of an overdose or death from an overdose and that if they can reduce that shame and stigma i don't know maybe they would be willing to use in a supervised in a supervised consumption site or use with other people and that would reduce the death rate what do you think of that argument well, we definitely need some safe injection sites. I mean, we don't have them, you know, they're far and few between, right? A lot of communities don't want it. And again, you know, it's not saying it's legalized. We're saying it's decriminalized, right? right. So there's still a stigma around to somebody, say, if you're a nurse, right? You know, it's going to affect them, right? Because decriminalizing it doesn't affect. I mean, I, I'm grateful that I know addiction is a health issue, not a justice issue, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's a bone, you know, I think that's great that, you know, we're starting to look at it as a health issue, but let's look at it as a health issue. It takes, you know, and that's wraparound care, wraparound support, um, right. you know, and that starts with, you know, I think, I think somewhere, I think Global News had on today, I think they have 3,200, um, you know, funded beds. Well, we know there's yeah. like 60,000 people who have addiction issues. Right. Really? Wow. Like, 32? That's pathetic. Where You know, this is going on six years, and, you know, I can't tell you how many people I know what are not here anymore. Let's talk a little bit about that treatment and recovery that, that you focus on. And we hear a lot about harm reduction. We hear a lot about supervised injection sites or decriminalizing drugs or people who want to completely legalize drugs and, and allow people to have access to pharmaceutical-grade drugs to prevent deaths but what about treatment what about recovery like like you say you're you're, a, you're an example living example you can yeah. you can get off these drugs you can beat them yeah and again i mean when people are i mean i 
we worked with like over 900 clients last year coming out of the prison system. And most of them want to go to treatment. Most of them want, you know, they want to change their life. Addiction is the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. Right. People think yeah. it's super easy. It's not. It's a, you know, it's a hustle and bustle. Where are you going to get your dope? Where are you going to live? You know, the, you know, again, the stigma, the shame, you know, it's, yeah, and people need the other option. We've gone so far on harm reduction one way, and we forget that people do recover, and people do want to recover. Do you think that, you know, that's the missing part of the equation here, that there, there's too much harm reduction and not enough recovery and treatment? Personally, 100%. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, like how, you know? difficult, how difficult is it to get help? I mean, we had, a, we had an amazing phone call on the open line on the show yesterday from a man who was trying to save his niece from addiction, and he, and he said he tried. He tried to get her into treatment, tried to get her in recovery, and there was just nothing available. There's nothing, right? I mean, I could have five people walk in right now and say, I want, to fin- I, I want off the dope. There's no help for them, right? Why is that? You got such, we don't have enough detox beds. We don't have enough yeah. treatment, right? Yeah. You know, we could put another 20,000, I mean, 20,000 beds and you'd still have a wait list. Right? People want to change. People don't want to be out there, but there's no choice. I always say they unlock the key to the prison, but not key to society, right? You come out of jail and what options do you have? There isn't any. Last question for you, Mo. I, I mean, yeah. I, I sometimes wonder if harm reduction is, is the easier option for politicians to choose. The tougher one might be treatment and recovery. Uh, because of the expense, right? Like it's it's expensive to provide these services, correct? Um, is it because you know it's like three hundred dollars a night for somebody being in, incarcerated? And we know most people are in jail because of their crimes they're doing towards getting their to support their drug habit. So it's not yeah. simple possession. You know, it's the shoplifting, it's the being eased. You know, it's you know it's those kind of crimes where it costs us a fortune, and of course their health is. You know, not even counting what it's costing us in the healthcare because, you know, they're not taking care of their health. Um, the bottom line, it'd be way cheaper. Since I got clean, I don't do crime. I don't think I'm a productive member of society. I pay my taxes. Like, you know, it doesn't cost society anything for me changing my life, but it costs us money if they don't change. Right. And people want to change. All you got to do is be there and support them and believe in them and give them dignity. And we don't give people enough dignity. Mo, it's been great to have you on the show today. Thank you for coming on with your thoughts today. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's continue talking about decriminalizing small amounts of illicit drugs announced this week in British Columbia. Pleased to welcome Carolyn Bennett now, the Minister for Mental Health and Addictions in the federal government. Very pleased to welcome her. Minister, thank you for coming on. Oh, it's, uh, it's great to be on your show. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Minister, I was just speaking to an advocate for drug treatment and recovery who doesn't think that decriminalizing small amounts of these drugs will, will make a lot of difference in terms of deaths and overdoses. Can, can you tell me why the government is going in this direction? Yeah, well, I think that in the, um, there was the expert panel that uh, Minister Hydru uh, commissioned last uh, March and in their May report on decriminalization, and then in their June report on on um, drug policy, they called for bold action and uh, and significant policy shift. One of which, of course, was uh, decriminalizing um, uh, or not pressing charges for people using drugs and with in possession of small amounts. So there is evidence to show that uh, that that 
threat uh, in, is part of the stigma and is part of people um, not accessing um, health and social services and using alone and dying alone. And so I think that's why the province of British Columbia um, submitted the application for the Section 56 exemption. But I think what we know is that's one piece of the whole spectrum of, of uh, interventions we need to do in the, you know, the four pillars of drug policy that started in Vancouver. So, you know, prevention, treatment, harm reduction, as well as law enforcement. So we are working equally hard on on acquiring the safe supply of drugs because so many deaths are from that toxic drug supply. And we are very, very um you know, grateful for all right. the people on the front line, but also the people using drugs and people who have, you know, lived and living experience are very much part of us evolving all of the policies that will take to stop this crisis. Okay. How many people are being charged right now with possession of these small amounts of drugs in British Columbia? Uh, the reason I, I wonder is I've spoken to police officers who have told me for years that, look, we, we stop charging people for possession of these drugs in small amounts for personal use a long time ago that are you yep. is there evidence yep. that the people are being charged for possession of these small amounts now well the office of public prosecution really issued a guidance document that said to police um or law enforcement across the country not to charge people i yeah. think in my first first meeting with uh, um kennedy stewart it was clear that they may well not be charged, but their drugs are being confiscated. Yeah. And as soon as their drugs are confiscated, then they're they're absolutely stressed as to how they would get, um, you know, this the, their medicine. Um, and then that that precipitates risky behavior, um, and yeah. and uh, and that they they end up in real trouble. And so this is about this exemption means the police will only not charge, but not confiscate um, the drugs. Let me play a clip here for you, Minister, of a, a caller on yesterday's show. We were discussing this issue. This is Bill from Burnaby, and he, he describes here how his niece was an addict. He tried to get her help to get off drugs, not successful. Anyway, have a listen here. I'll get your thoughts. I am totally against normalizing any of this stuff my niece passed away about a week ago now she didn't even make her 25th birthday we've been battling this for years her addiction issue what we found was the biggest obstacle was the very people that are putting these ridiculous policies in place to begin with she said well why do i have to do anything you know this is this is acceptable what, what do you say to him or anyone listening who may be wondering decriminalizing drugs how is that an answer especially when people can't get can't get their loved ones or family members into treatment to get them off drugs we just got a minute left here minister well i think there's you know, treatment and access to treatment is is hugely important and that's in terms of the 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 application for this section 56 exemption had to demonstrate that if we're going to move people from the criminal justice system into health and social services, we need to be ramping up the health and social services to make sure that it, that, that that's there for right. people using drugs to be able to access. And I think British Columbia has demonstrated, um, you know, a very comprehensive plan on how they want to 
wrap up um, not only, you know, safe consumption, safe supply, but also housing, social services, and and the kind of primary care, um, developing that okay. trusted um, relationship with a family doctor or nurse practitioner, like in the integrated use services at the Foundry, like at Kalila Lalem, like at, you know, um, uh, Peter's place. There's so many places that now, um, you know, know they've got to be able to Thank increase you. access because we want no, we don't want any closed doors. Thank you, Minister, for your time today. Thank you very much.